0: Hi there. I just want to say thanks to everyone who reached out to me after the Nicki Minaj episode. And I also just wanted to say if you want to help out the show, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way and helps out a lot. You can also find me on social media. Just search Anatomy of a Verse, it's not hard to find. Or you can send me an email at anatomyofaverse at gmail.com and let me know if there are any verses or songs or subjects that you'd like to hear me cover on the show. And this episode does contain some content that, while very, very funny, is probably not appropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. By this point, You probably already know the basic story of how hip-hop was born in the South Bronx in New York City. Poor kids, most of them in gangs, putting their differences aside to party together in abandoned buildings and courtyards and rec centers. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, there were graffiti artists, breakdancers, DJs, rappers, all of these people capturing the nation's attention and suddenly contributing to this mammoth cultural industry. This is the story that most of us are familiar with. The story of hip-hop as a cultural diamond forged in the furnace of New York City's urban decay. It's a great story, it's a sexy story, and it's not entirely false, but it is a little bit misleading because... The truth is that hip-hop was bubbling under the surface of American pop culture for a very long time, even before DJ Cool Herc's now-famous 1973 block party. And you can see the beginnings of hip-hop in everything from Jamaican sound system culture and World War II graffiti to Bruce Lee kung fu movies and bebop music, and the list just goes on and on. And by the late 80s, anyone who assumed that hip-hop was just a New York City regional thing was about to get a very rude awakening. Because all the way on the other side of the country, in the city of Los Angeles, California, there was another hip-hop revolution beginning to emerge. And this one would be fueled by the same oppressive conditions that had created the first one. And while the message would be largely the same... The messengers would be very different. Welcome to Anatomy of a Verse, the podcast that examines rap music and hip hop culture one verse at a time. I'm Max Maples, and today we're talking about the West Side.
1: Here's a
2: little story that must be told. It's a music that is all beat and talk. It's rap music. We
1: don't do that in my music, man. I'm tired of you saying that. Yeah, how about the gang rape on
2: it? Well, when it comes to the children, Wu-Tang is for the children. You had a, a rap singer here last night named Sister Soldier. And they, they, they've given them permission to go down and shoot us. Yes. It's not actually a form of music, it's a, it's a form of rhythmic speed. You
1: have murdered a rock, I injured a stone, and I a hospitalized a brick. I'm so bad I make medicine sick.
0: Timothy Blair, a.k.a. Tim Dog, grew up in the South Bronx in the 70s, so He knew what good rapping sounded like. In fact, some of his best friends were future rap legends, like KRS-One and the Ultramagnetic MCs. So you can imagine how he felt when record labels started telling him that if he wanted to get signed, he needed to change his clothes and change his hair and rap more like these guys coming out of Los Angeles. According to the record labels, all the good shit was coming out of Compton. But Tim Dog wasn't hearing it. You see, he had battled his way to get to this point. That's how he ended up on the song that kicked off his career. Tim Dog won his verse on a chorus line by the ultramagnetic MCs by beating one of Cool Keith's friends in a rap battle. There wasn't room for both of them on the song. So Tim Dog got the verse.
1: Come me big, 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 disrespect cuz I'm too quick. I'll be a phase and race with the brain. I'm the head master and you're my slave. Manifold maps the off the stacks. the class, the faster, call me the match.
0: And if there's one thing that everyone knew for sure, it was that when Tim Dog went on the mic, he went hard. So said G from the Ultramagnetic MCs cooked up a plan that might just get him the record deal that he deserved.
1: Tim's on chorus line. Chorus line is huge on the streets. So I go into uh, Sony with, with Tim's demo, and Kurt Juice goes, yo, Tim is dope, Tim is dope, but I'm gonna tell you how we gonna get a deal. I'm gonna tell you how we gonna get a deal. He said, you gonna take Tim? Put them on a beat similar to Chorus Line. And have them diss the motherfuckers from the West Coast. Oh shit, motherfuckers step to the ring, cheer. Cause Tim Dog is here. Let's get right down to the nitty-gritty and talk about a bullshit city. Talking about niggas from Compton. They're no comp and they truly ain't stomping. Tim Dog, a black man's task. I'm so bad I whip Superman's ass.
0: It's definitely possible that you've never heard of the song Fuck Compton by Tim Dog. Just like it's possible that you've never heard of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. But in both cases, a relatively small decision would set in motion a series of events that spiraled way out of everyone's control. In the case of Fuck Compton, what followed was an East Coast-West Coast rivalry that ended in the deaths of Tupac and Biggie. But, of course, that's a different story for a different episode. The truth is, Tim Dog didn't have anything against Compton or the West Coast. He just thought it was messed up that the real MCs from the South Bronx were getting overshadowed by a bunch of no-talent wannabes. But what Tim Dog failed to realize was that those guys out in Compton, they were not no-talent wannabes. They were the real deal and they were ready to change the game. All the way on the other side of the country, Andre Ramel Young, better known as Dr. Dre, had become one of the most in-demand producers in hip-hop. He was feeling pretty good after getting out of a suffocating record deal that hadn't paid him hardly anything. Now he had his own record label, Death Row Records, with new music and a new batch of young talented rappers who had all heard the song Fuck Compton and were ready to fire back. Because you see, Tim Dog hadn't just dissed the city of Compton in general. He had called Dr. Dre out by name. He had even brought up Dre's history of abusing women, multiple times. Incidents that continue to tarnish Dre's reputation to this day. So, it's safe to assume that Dr. Dre was feeling a certain type of way about Tim Dog, And his response would come in the form of a diss record called Fuck Wit Dre Day and Everybody's Celebratin' off the classic 1992 album The Chronic.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah.
0: I should mention this song isn't just about Tim Dog. Each verse is dedicated towards a different rapper who at one point had talked some shit about Dr. Dre. But the funny thing is, Dre never actually mentions Tim Dog by name once. Instead, he gives that job to one of his up and coming rappers. A budding superstar talent from Long Beach known as Snoop Doggy Dog.
2: Bow Wow Wow yippie, Yo yippie, yay Doggy Dog's in the motherfucking
0: While The Chronic is technically a Dr. Dre solo album, everyone agrees at this point that the star of the show is Snoop. After this album came out, Snoop Doggy Dogg was on his way to becoming not just a West Coast hip-hop legend, but an American pop culture icon. And his now-famous chant, Bow Wow Wow Yippie Yo Yippie Yay, actually comes from a song released ten years earlier, in 1982, the song Atomic Dog" by the one and only Mr. Funkadelic himself, George Clinton life, oh, yeah, yeah, the street,
1: there the street. I'm yeah, but now,
0: yeah. We can't just move on after mentioning George Clinton, because George Clinton is maybe even more important to the sound of West Coast gangster rap than Dr. Dre and Snoop Doggy Dogg. What James Brown was for New York City hip-hop, George Clinton was for this new style of hip-hop that was coming out of Compton. And Dre's album, The Chronic, is basically a big homage to George Clinton. It's chock full of samples, references, and hooks all credited to him. In fact, one of the songs is almost a note-for-note cover of George Clinton's song, P-Funk. And Clinton's influence on this music does not stop there. George Clinton would often invent crazy characters, and he would give them names like Starchild, The Lollipop Man, or... Dr. Funkenstein, and then he would pretend to be these characters within his songs. Now, we know from previous episodes that fictional or semi-fictional characters are a very common theme across all of hip-hop music, but George Clinton's characters had a particularly strong influence on Snoop Dogg.
2: I remember Sir Nose, I had his poster, the character that he created with the long nose and the white brim on, standing on top of water because he didn't like to swim and I had that poster in my room because it was so funny, but it was dope. I didn't even know what dope was. I didn't even know what fresh was, but I know it was funny and it felt good to me listening to Sir Knows and listening to Dr. Funkenstein and all of these characters, Starchild, these characters that he created, which eventually made me create my characters because I was so inspired by it. He's influenced me in so many ways. He pro- proclaimed me the futuristic Bow Wow, the pick of the litter, me being Snoop Doggy Dog, The Atomic Dog.
0: Now, before we dive into Snoop's verse, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Dr. Dre's production style, because that is without question the most revolutionary and influential aspect of this album. Back then, in the early 90s, pretty much all hip-hop songs were based on samples, or what we sometimes call breaks. And Dr. Dre knew how to use samples and breaks. He had done it very well on past albums, but for this one, he decided to do something a little different, something that would have a huge impact on the evolution of rap music. To show you what I'm talking about, let's take a quick listen to a clip from another George Clinton song, this one called Not Just Knee Deep.
2: Never missing a beat, yeah Boy was it neat, yeah Not just me deep, she was totally neat When she did the freak with me Never missing a beat, yeah
0: Now I'm going to take a portion of this song I'm going to slow it down and play it on a loop Over and over And we know that Dre and Snoop were very familiar with this song because this beat, the way you're hearing it right now, was actually used on the demo tape that a very young Snoop Doggy Dog made to get Dr. Dre's attention before they had ever even met.
2: Be, uh-huh. no family. Hold hands with me, make plans with me, and once in a lifetime, your chance to be. Now dance me. Like
0: now I'm gonna take the not just knee-deep sample and I'm gonna slow it down even more. And yeah, I'm using digital software to do this, so it's gonna sound pretty terrible, but just notice how as it gets slower and slower, it starts to sound very similar to the beat for Fuck With Dre Day. And now, here's the actual beat for Dre Day. And you might be thinking to yourself, those don't sound that similar. In fact, really the only similarity is the bass line. And actually, Tom Brown's song, Funkin' for Jamaica, uses the exact same bass line. But regardless of what seems fair, in the end, George Clinton got the cred, so presumably, George Clinton gets the bread. But what's a lot more important here is that Dr. Dre didn't actually lift the sample directly from the record, like what was normally done for hip-hop songs. Instead, he replayed just the bassline using his own Moog synthesizer. In the industry, this is called interpolation. And his decision to use mostly interpolations instead of direct samples is a very, very important one. Because ultimately, that's what made the music a lot more polished and radio-friendly than the raw, traditional sample-based hip-hop that was coming out of New York. And just like how Dre's production was a sharp contrast to the New York style of production, Snoop's rapping is also a sharp an intentional contrast to the New York style of rapping. The style of rapping that was used by MCs like Tim Dog. So now I'm gonna play through this whole second verse from Snoop Dogg from start to finish. And as you listen through, just notice how instead of being loud and in your face and aggressive, Snoop Doggy Dogg is the exact opposite. He's cool and calm and laid back. And remember, he's channeling George Clinton's goofy, mischievous character, the Atomic Dog.
2: <laughs> Bow, wow, wow, yippee-yo, yippee-yay, doggy-dogs in the motherfucking house.
1: Bow, wow, wow,
2: yippee-yo, yippee-yay, death rose in the motherfucking house. Bow, wow, wow, yippee-yo, yippee-yay, the sounds of a dog bring me to another day. Play with my bone with your Timmy It seems like you're good for making jokes about your Jimmy Well here's the Jimmy joke about your mama that you might not like I heard she was a Frisco dyke But fuck your mama I'm talking about you and me Toe to toe take your bark was loud, but your bite wasn't vicious. And the rhymes you were kicking were quite booty bootylicious. You get what doggy dog, oh, is he crazy? With your mama and your daddy hollering, baby. So what that lets you know? That if you fuck with Drake, nigga, you're fucking with death, bro. And I ain't even swinging them things. I'm hollering, one, eight, seven, with my dick in your mouth, yeah.
0: So right after that bow, wow, wow, yippee yo, yippee introduction, Snoop quickly gets to business with a verbal assault on Tim Dog, who he refers to as Timmy. And let's just pause for a second and appreciate the canine nature of this matchup. Snoop Dog versus Tim Dog. And Snoop definitely appreciates it because his very first comment towards Tim is a dog related innuendo about Tim playing with his bone.
2: Another day. Play with my bone would you your Timmy. It seems like you're good for making jokes about your Jimmy. Well, here's the Jimmy joke about your mama that you might not like. I heard she was a Frisco dyke and fuck your mama.
0: Now, we're gonna pause there for a second. I think it goes without saying that this joke about Tim's mom being a lesbian from San Francisco is in poor taste and would never make it on an album in 2020. However, we have to talk about it on this episode because Believe it or not, rapping insults about someone else's family members is actually a tradition that goes back way, way, way before rap music. I
1: have to talk about your wife because she's a mighty old soul. The old bitch got a ten-pound pussy and rubber asshole. The bitch got her hands in her arms and a sweep the floor. She got a ten-pound pussy and shut the door. Talk <laughs> about your old wife on a choo-choo train and knock up and give a little stinky ass baby to come out trying to play like jazz age <laughs> <laughs> i your mom on the same chain Oh baby come out looking like a ranger yeah. chain All right you don't gone too goddamn far yeah. You don't start about my mama and your mama
0: This recording is from 1971 over 20 years before Dre day It's called The Dirty Dozens and it's by the legendary Los Angeles based comedian and actor Rudy Ray Moore now, if George Clinton is the grandfather of West Coast hip-hop, then Rudy Ray Moore is undoubtedly its dirty uncle. Snoop himself said, quote, Without Rudy Ray Moore, there would be no Snoop Dogg. He was through with it before we knew what to do with it, and we're going to take it to the next level and let the younger generation know what he means to the industry and what he means to this community that we call rap, end quote. And when you listen to Dre's album, The Chronic, you hear it's filled with sophomoric humor and a fascination with genitalia on tracks like *D's Nuts. That all comes directly from the comedy of Rudy Ray Moore. And just like George Clinton, Rudy Ray Moore was also known for playing wild and crazy characters. In fact, the thing that he is best known for is the slick talking karate-choppin' character known as Dolomite.
1: Dolomite is my name, and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. I've got an all-girl army that knows what to do. They'll box as hell and practice kung fu. I put my finger in the ground and turn the whole world around.
0: And although Rudy Ray Moore made Dolomite famous, Dolomite actually began as a poem that Moore heard told to him by a drunk homeless man who wandered into the record store where he was working as a young man. Rudy Ray Moore also did not invent the Dirty Dozens. The Dirty Dozens is a game, or what some would call a loose social tradition in African-American culture, in which two people take turns insulting each other or more often, insulting members of the other person's family. And it almost always involves language that is as vulgar as humanly possible.
1: Yes, and I know your old wife too, she ain't no better. I took that old wife when she was a goddamn whore, I made her suck my dick and she shit all over the floor. Yeah, <laughs> I like saw your old fucking wife swing and swing. that old fucking pussy shot like a diamond ring. Yes, and I took your old wife and backed up against a fence and I'd be goddamn if she didn't try to screw herself with a goddamn monkey ring. I fuck your wife on a sack of flour, and baby come out hot black powder. I fuck your wife on that same sack of flour, knock her and give our baby that come out singing for a whole goddamn three hours.
0: And traditionally, the insults will continue going back and forth, back and forth, until either one person can't think of a comeback or. The situation turns violent because somebody throws a punch or pulls out a weapon.
1: You would still be bothered, little, to be letting a turtle bite you on the head of your Ooh, dick. Yeah, and you yeah, know, oh he my won't goodness. turn it or lose it to on, on, the, the dough thunder. thunder. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna thunder off and don't try to wash you with this goddamn can. Yeah. Yeah. How you gonna oh, die? you funny with You don't know I'm this.
0: Now, for some people, this might sound just totally barbaric or ridiculous. But what you have to understand is this tradition goes all the way back to the time of slavery. And when we talk about slavery, of course, words like barbaric and ridiculous are relative terms. For example, think about this for a second. If you were a slave and you told your boss to go fuck himself, well, you were definitely going to lose a lot more than just your job. So, for slaves, the Dozens was not just a crude game, but it was a form of therapy and also a form of exercise in self-control, particularly for young men. It was a way to ensure that they did not get killed or sold away from their families simply because they could not keep their emotions in check around a brutal master. And the Dirty Dozens stayed in African-American culture, even after slavery was abolished. But for obvious reasons, it couldn't be shown on TV or played in radio stations. So it was often censored or repackaged into something less obvious. That's how we wind up with all the sexual innuendos in blues and rock and roll music, or more recently, Yo Mama jokes. This is the lightning round. Dozens from any category are accepted. The first man to flinch is eliminated. All right, on your marks and go.
1: Your mama gums is so black she spits you hoo. <laughs> mother teeth so rotten when she smiles, look like she got a mouth full of dice. Fresh. Your mother so old when God said let there be light, she hit the switch. <laughs>
0: Today, the dozens is seen as one of the fundamental building blocks of black comedy. But It's also something that intentionally blurs the line between friendly play-fighting and straight-up bullying. Like I said before, often the whole point of engaging someone in the dozens was to provoke them into a fight, and we can hear this in Snoop's verse. After he insults Tim's mom, then he basically challenges Tim to a fight. Then he makes fun of how loud Tim's rapping is, calling his rhymes bootylicious. Which I don't think he means in the Destiny's Child sense. Of course, what he means is that Tim Dog's rapping sounds the way a butthole smells. And then to cap it all off, he says, basically, if you want to mess with me, I'll beat you so bad that your mama and your daddy are gonna have to come save you
2: him you take your bark was loud but your bite wasn't vicious and the rhymes you were kicking were quite bootylicious you get what doggie dog oh is he crazy with your mama and your daddy howling baby
0: and all these traditions that we've been talking about so far like the use of folk characters and playing the dozens these things all fall under a much broader category of african-american oral traditions that's often referred to as signifying. Now, signifying is a very, very broad topic, and we don't have time to cover it in full on one episode, but what's important to know is that signifying is a fundamentally African-American way of using and intentionally misusing the English language. Basically, if I could sum it up in one sentence, signifying is the process of taking words, phrases, or even several sentences, and making them mean something completely different. So, let's take, for example, the term, bad motherfucker. Nowadays, that's a term that means someone who is really awesome and worthy of a lot of respect. And if we're talking about the dozens or yo mama jokes, well, think about it for a second. Nobody was actually talking about literally having sex with the other person's mother. The essence of the joke has very little to do with the literal definitions of the words, and the real meaning lies within the cleverness and the creativity with which those words and ideas are put together. In that sense, it is just like rap music. And when we talk about the lyrics to this particular rap song, Dre Day, I don't think anyone thinks that Snoop Doggy Dogg actually wants to stick his penis in Tim Dog's mouth. And yet, at three different points in the song, he talks about doing exactly that. So, once we know what signifying is, we begin to see examples of it literally everywhere in hip-hop music. Even when we look at the dog-related names. We know that Snoop was inspired by George Clinton and the Atomic Dog character. But that doesn't necessarily explain where Tim Dog got his name from. it also doesn't explain what DMX would mean a few years later.
1: Where my dog's at? He right here,
0: dog.
2: Where my dog's at?
0: Was he actually looking for a lost German shepherd or a chihuahua? No, of course not. A dog is a symbol of loyalty. When rappers talk about dogs, they're talking about faithful soldiers, albeit faithful soldiers that can get a little messy from time to time.
2: You get what doggy dog, oh, is he crazy? With your mama and your daddy hollering, baby. So, what that lets you know that if you fuck with Drake nigga, you fuckin' with death, bro. And I need swinging them things, I'm 187 with my dick in your mouth. Bitch.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and we even hear a great example of signifying in the last few lines of this verse with the term 187. That is a reference to to Section 187 of the California Penal Code, the section that concerns the crime of murder. Now, no doubt anyone who was from the streets in California knew what the term 187 meant. They had heard it shouted out over police radios, and Snoop had even used it once before in the song Deep Cover, just a year earlier.
2: It's on undercover car. Yeah, and you don't stop. you don't stop.
0: That's right, Snoop is talking about murdering an undercover cop in this song. But unlike earlier controversial songs like Ice T's Cop Killer or NWA's Fuck the Police, Snoop was subtle. He used a specific language that he knew only a select group of people would understand. And this is a classic example of signifying. Perhaps the most legendary and storied example of signifying that I can think of, that may or may not be true, is the idea that many old Negro spirituals, songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and Wade in the Water, actually contained, within their lyrics, secret, hidden messages that only slaves could understand. Secret instructions on how and when to make it to freedom via the Underground Railroad. It's an awesome story, and the reason that we'll never know if it really happened or not is that none of these slavery-era examples of signifying were recorded in any reliable way. Remember, slaves, for the most part, could not read or write. And that's probably why such a huge part of African-American culture is rooted in oral traditions. Slaves were forced to develop the English language in ways that, to be honest, white people like me will probably never fully understand. But nevertheless, it is a huge part of what makes this music so incredibly special even when the lyrics seem to subvert that specialness. And I think this really helps us understand why almost 20 years later, The Chronic is a classic album and Fuck Compton is a historical footnote. I think that Tim Dogg assumed what a lot of people naturally assume when a newer or younger style of music starts to challenge our sense of identity. The assumption is that the younger style must be less informed, less experienced, that there's no way that this could be replacing the thing that I grew up with. And yes, Snoop and Dre did replace a lot of classic New York hip-hop traditions with shinier, more polished ones, but they also used traditions and references that were way older and more deeply rooted in African-American culture. And I think it's important for us to understand these traditions and references, to understand where they came from and how they developed and how they became a necessary piece of American pop culture. Because if we don't, then we wind up missing the point of the music entirely. We wind up nodding our heads to the beat and laughing along to the jokes without really caring about what they represent.
1: Hey, Leroy! What? Your mama... Calling
0: you, man. <laughs> Anatomy of a Verse is created by me, Max Maples, in Brooklyn, New York. This episode is dedicated to the one and only Tim Dogg, who, most likely, passed away in 2013. Next time, we're talking about the elusive, incredible Andre 3000 from OutKast. Shout out to Atlanta and the whole state of Georgia. And thanks for listening.